everyone and welcome to FemFabs, a podcast brought to you by Young Feminist Europe. My name is Emma and I am joined here today with my colleague Joanna. Hi there, it's great to be back and we hope everyone had a great summer. At Young Feminist Europe, we are very excited about the next few months ahead as we've just launched our new campaign, My Clit Counts. Why My Clit Counts, you may ask? Well, we believe that the clitoris is symbolic of the greater inequality of women's sexual pleasure and health. 100% Joanna. And throughout the campaign, we'll not only be talking about orgasms, but we'll also be touching on the broader topics around the themes of gynecological health and reproductive justice. So without further ado, let's introduce our kick-ass guest for today's very special episode. Today we are here with our special guest, um, Emma Hart from Brussels Irish for Choice. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Emma, for joining us. And uh, Laura de Bonfis from Passionara and Non Una di Meno Europa. Hi. Thank you for being here, Laura. So my first question goes to Emma. So last year, the Republic of Ireland held a momentous referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment from its constitution that banned abortion health care. Mm-hmm. So Emma, in your opinion, why was the campaign so successful and how did it yield 66% of the population to support it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So yeah, in May 2018, uh, the Eighth Amendment was repealed from the Irish Constitution. So uh, what was the Eighth Amendment? Well, essentially, it was a, an article in our Constitution which stated that uh, the unborn had equal right to life of the mother. So essentially, this made access to abortion health care impractical and impossible. Essentially, as long as there was a fetal heartbeat, there was no way of terminating the pregnancy within the Republic of Ireland. This was passed, the Eighth Amendment, I should say, was passed by referendum in 1983. So just to kind of give a little bit of history before I respond fully to your question. In 1983, this was passed by referendum uh, with 66.9% of the vote. So that's a significant chunk of the electorate. The turnout was roughly 53%. Uh, This compares to turnout in 2018 to repeal the Eighth Amendment, uh, which was 64.13%. And then overall, globally, uh, over 66% voted for repeal, which is great. And then, of course, you've got pockets of the country, some most constituencies in Dublin, you've got constituencies in Kildare and Wicklow, voted by, you know, between 70 and 75%. So there was a real kind of rally in a lot of places and real support to repeal the Eighth Amendment. So the Eighth Amendment has been tested repeatedly since its implementation in the early 80s. Uh, One notable case was in the early 90s. A young girl known as Miss X was raped by a neighbour and wanted to travel uh, in order to procure an abortion. Uh, The Attorney General intervened and uh, essentially kind of forbade this. So this case was brought to, to the court. Ultimately, Miss X was allowed to travel And this raised a conversation within Ireland about the status of abortion. And so this led to two other amendments of our constitution, the 13th and the 14th amendments, which first of all enabled people who wish to procure an abortion to travel outside of the Republic to get one, and which also enabled people to access information on uh, their reproductive options within the Republic. Uh, So these are quite significant um, shifts So the public actually accepted these amendments, which I would kind of say demonstrated not necessarily um, 
a complete and utter rejection of abortion, but just within the confines of the Republic of Ireland, people didn't want it happening on, on their territory. That's one reading of it. So the mood has been shifting over the decades. So, of course, you've got the influence of the Catholic Church, which is receding in Ireland. And you've also had a number of scandals which have just been focused on women in Ireland as well. And so you can see a lot of people are kind of seeing that there is a, the, the fissure has been increasing over time. So you have the Magdalene Laundry scandal, uh, which, you know, essentially women were institutionalized into servitude if they were deemed to you know be too flirtatious or if they had babies out of wedlock um and these were awful institutions and we're still only reconciling ourselves with the impact of that now there are a number of other scandals which i could kind of point to but i think it would take a long time to get to the point so um what i'd like to say is that the mood has been shifting over time uh we also then set up um, a citizens assembly and this was a group of just under 100 uh, irish citizens who were asked to deliberate upon the question of the eighth amendment and essentially uh, these citizens took a lot of time and effort to really deliberate upon the question of whether people had the right to access abortion and they came out with a number of recommendations uh, first and foremost to put it to the the population to have a referendum to remove the eighth amendment from the constitution and this was a real focal point of conversation during um, the referendum campaign in addition to that the eighth amendment also helped uh, a lot of political figures to really shift their thinking on what the eighth amendment uh, was doing in irish society what it actually meant for people in practical terms you know detrimental impact on their health being forced to travel you know and actually what kind of disparities this laid bare so if you had the means to travel you could if you didn't then you couldn't and then of course this leads other people to situations where they might have to procure medical abortion pills online and take them unsupervised so it it kind of brought to light a lot of these stories storytelling was an amazing part of the campaign as well so you had a lot of experts by experience who were given a platform to talk about the impact of the eighth amendment on their particular circumstance um, and kind of just brought to the fore the, the cruel and unusual circumstances that people were forced into. For instance, if you wanted to procure an abortion by choice because you weren't ready to become a parent, um, or you just it wasn't the right circumstance for you, or even if it was a wanted pregnancy, but you were facing um, a fatal fetal abnormality and couldn't face bringing the pregnancy to term, uh, your, li- your options were quite limited. So I think the ability to be able to tell these stories, creating a platform to tell these stories, really kind of stir- stirred up something in the public, and they really responded to this and kind of trusted, uh, trusted people to make the decisions which were best for them. I have a question, actually, about the Citizens' Assembly. Mm-hmm. As one Irish person from the other side of the border to the other, that do you think the Citizens' Assembly give the space for politicians to um, kind of shift the responsibility onto uh, this other platform? Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding my head because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think so. Um, I think the question of abortion healthcare in Ireland has always been a controversial one. Yes, so I think the Citizens' Assembly did a number of things, two things that really come to mind at the moment. First of all, it opened up a conversation for politicians to delegate this question to the citizens. Essentially kind of take some distance and say, okay, whether or not we are in favour, we can say there is popular support for either having a referendum to outright remove the Eighth Amendment or to modify it, 
Or we can say, look, we tried, but there's literally no support for this. So we're going to not kind of pursue this route. I also think that the Citizens' Assembly created space for people within Ireland to be a little bit braver in kind of vocalising their position. For a long time, you might find people distancing themselves, at least this is in my experience, people distancing themselves from having to take a position either way. So they might think, yes, I think it's right that a woman should be able to choose. But somehow it becomes a a controversial thing to say. You fear kind of like maybe the judgment of somebody else, even though they might be thinking the same thing. So I think the Citizens' Assembly was so useful for opening up this deliberative, consultative process that actually cracked open a wider conversation, a political and social level. From a foreigner's point of view, (laughs) I found it very curious that I wasn't so aware that uh, it was actually allowed that, according to the law in Ireland, that people would travel abroad to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't be prosecuted if they just decided to go to England to get it. And and people seem to be okay with that possibility, right? I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any explanation on the top of your mind uh, for people to think like it's not okay if uh, it's here but mm-hmm. if it's not like if we cannot see it then you know we don't care it's not about like Irish women it's about being Irish territory yeah that that's a really really good question um so of course that that I mean, that's my reading. I can only imagine that other people might see it in the same Mm -hmm. way, that if you were going to amend the Constitution, if if you've got an amendment in the Constitution which says that the right of the unborn is equal to the right of the mother, full stop, and then you bring in an amendment to say, actually, it is okay to travel in order to procure an abortion. I mean, the two things don't necessarily kind of square at least in my uh, in my head. So I think there's some cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, all of this happened when I was a child, so it all seems so alien to me, you know, from where I am now to look back um, and try and understand what the, what the rationale was at the time. I can only imagine it's people probably were very uncomfortable with the practice. You know, they were probably really thinking about who they wanted to be as a people. In the same way in 2018, we decided who we wanted to be as a population. You know, what kind of Ireland we wanted to build for ourselves. And I think another thing, uh, in addition to that, is people were then confronted with the harsh reality of the Eighth Amendment. So I, I think I would probably look at this as being kind of a step change towards attitudes changing, you know. Um, no, we don't want it here, but if you really want one, if you really need one, it's on offer elsewhere. I just find it interesting. It's, it's as you said, it just doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we're also looking at this from a very different perspective. Yeah. Um, back in the 90s, uh, when I was growing up, Ireland was still quite conservative mm. um, and quite Catholic. And so it's only... And the time since then that you can kind of see the, the influence of the church receding. And again, it's, it's linked to a lot of the, the scandals um, that mainly concern women and their place in society. And I don't know, maybe, maybe we're starting to kind of acknowledge that at the time. Um, and we've certainly acknowledged it now and we're kind of moving our path out forward. But the change has been slow. I think for me, Ireland being such a traditionally Catholic country... Mm-hmm. I think even when the when the Pope came to, came to visit in 2018 and the lack of turnout was a big signal of um, 
sort of general population's moved against religious interference in health and education. Uh, it's felt like very much Ireland was saying no. They wanted a separation between church and state. And I think the, subs- the referendums, particularly on divorce, repudiate abortion and um, same-sex marriage, they've been kind of like a signal towards these old yeah. laws. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And I think it's, just, it's very particular as well because um, a lot of these issues that I've been talking about, so you're talking about, you know, the Magdalene laundries, you're talking about the, the tomb mother and baby home, um, you know, the, the church has been quite integral <laughs> to, to these things being enabled. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're starting to shift our attitudes towards women, towards the church. So I think you're right. So we're just going to bring in Laura here. I hope you're not feeling too lonely while Emma was talking about it. Repeal. Though we've, we could listen to Emma all day because I think it's just, I could listen to, I could talk about repeal all day. But um, so... Abortion in Italy has been legal for quite some time, but yet conscious clauses have been making it very inaccessible for a lot of women. Do you want to talk about that? So thank you for the question. Yeah, in Italy, we have abortion. Abortion is accessible since 1978 when we hosted a referendum that abrogated the law that was banning abortion, access to abortion in Italy. So the law 194. But we still have the problem. The law was introducing as well the conscience clauses for the medical uh, doctors, but as well for people working in hospitals or for anesthetists. So the problem is that in Italy, we still have 68.4% of the uh, doctors on an average, so it's seven out of 10, are objecting to perform abortions. So the problem in Italy is access to to services, access to uh, abortion for women and uh, the huge problem as well is not is not equal in all parts of the country so you can see lots of differences between regions or rural uh, places or main cities so for example so you go from uh, uh, Molise that is a small city a small region in Italy that that has the conscience clauses like doctors that uh, that uh, perform the conscience clause for 96 percent but then you also look at places like a, reg- a big region like Lombardy in the north, where Milan is, where it is uh, 80%. So it's still access to abortion is still a big problem for, uh, for Italians. In particular, um, we see with the former government, because now we had just recently we had a change in government, with the former government, there was a lot of anti-choice in the government. So they created the Ministry for Families, so there were attacks like on uh, abortion or as well direct attacks on women's rights, on health reproductive rights. So we see that our problem is it's access to, to services, but as well a lot of, uh, there is the, the new narrative that has started in the country against abortion. So whether we had the law since 41, for, uh, like it's 41 years that we have access to abortion, we still can access it in many places. And this creates other issues like the only doctor that performs abortion in the hospital is the one that is just doing, just performing abortion throughout his whole career, their whole career. And another big issue that we have is uh, the lack of sexual education in schools. So young women don't know what are their rights and how to access the different services. Seven out of 10 do yes. not, that's the in average. Those are pretty astounding figures. Is there anything being done on a a national level to try and counteract this or to encourage doctors to be more open to it? 
There have been regions that in public uh, hospitals have banned, they can't ban it because the law permits mm. the objections to performing abortions. So they're trying to, like there is a law that, that says that it, there, there has to be at least one doctor in the hospital, but the problem is that the numbers are too high. So there is difficulties in having these doctors in the different areas. So we have like women movement, we're very vocal every time that the Ministry of Health puts out data saying, oh, but it's not a problem. We still, we have abortion. We try to say, to take the numbers on and say, no, it's access is still an issue in Italy. So we try to bring it back to the news every time and counter this narrative that it's abortion is legal, we're fine. It is astounding that seven out of 10 doctors don't want to kind of perform this healthcare service. Are there any measures being taken, um, like maybe at like, you know, regional level or at you know, the national level to say, okay, well, if we can't find the doctors, we will bring the doctors to you. So, I mean, if the doctors in the one hospital are all on the same page and they don't want to perform uh, this, this service, can you bring in, can you find other creative solutions to make sure that there are no spots in Italy which are uncovered? There is always in areas one doctor that performs, but still it's one. So in certain parts, it's very difficult to access them. So the list to access it, it's, uh, it's, very, it's very difficult. I know at regional level, for example, Lazio region, like the Buebromis, has introduced the like the ban for having a certain amount of doctors that don't perform abortion in uh, public hospitals, because done for private, it's, uh, it's different. But it's, it's in the law, so it, it hasn't been changed yet. So the only thing that we can do is try to guarantee that in uh, every area there are at least, like it, the number is increasing. And the problem is also the doctors that are um, not objecting, so they're still performing abortions, are stigmatized from other doctors or in, in, the in several uh, parts. Mm -hmm. So we, we, ha we have to try to change the narratives as well in, the <laughs> in how it's, abortion is perceived. I mean, I just want to refer back to um, earlier when you mentioned sex education. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also particularly a big problem in Ireland and even where I'm from in Northern Ireland as well. It's individualized per school, so it isn't in like one national sort of mm -hmm. standard. Is, is it the same in Italy? Recently, we had a law that introduced a very minor... We had a, recently we had a law that introduced a very minor provision of a sexual education, a sexual and sentimental education in schools, but it's up to the school. So, so they, there is not yeah. a national curriculum, so each school decides how to allocate those hours. Mm -hmm. And I know I have a lot of, of the people that are in uh, Pazinaga with me are actually train, uh, are trainers, they go to school, so they, in those schools they're receiving very good sexual education because it's they are externalizing it to experts, but then it's up to the schools. Okay, yeah. And for example, when in my years, I've, I haven't had any sexual education in, the, in all my school career. I remember my sex education. It was by a religious, uh, one call them wingnuts, that came into my school and fed me religious dogma about abortion was bad. I got told, I think the only thing we actually got taught, we talked about, about contraception was condoms and that was about it. Yeah. Uh, everything that I had to learn about was um, just going to local clinics and getting uh, leaflets and things like that. Yeah, with us it's also, it's, 
it's uh, everything is linked not only to like it's not only sex education but it's also uh, learning like how to counter bullism or uh, gender-based violence or like sensibilizing trying to change uh, gender roles or so this is in Italy there is a big movement against uh, the gender theory like they call it like that but it's a uh, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, like confusion on what actually sex and uh, sentimental education would be in schools because we don't like the education would just teach and challenge certain norms. I just wanted to uh, ask you this question because I just uh, saw these numbers that actually the Italian government estimates that around 15,000 Italian women undergo clandestine abortions every year. So, um, I mean, I. It seems like incredible that in a country in which abortion is legal, there is uh, so many women undergoing uh, abortions without uh, proper uh, medical uh, support. So do you know uh, of any case in Italy that really uh, come, out, uh, come up in the media or you know, that really started any kind of conversation on this issue on illegal abortion? Is there any case that you can mention? We, there are no women that came out like that had performed illegal abortions but it's it's in the news and it's uh, we try as a feminist movement to to actually show the numbers that uh, the the conscience clauses for doctors are actually creating this however we have abortion we don't have access to it so in several parts in the south of italy or but even in my own city i'm from rome and I had to go with a friend when I was young to, diff to seven different clinics. To, at that point, it, was, it wasn't even abortion. It was the day after pill, because at that point, we still had the requirement of having the prescription. So now it's been, we don't need prescription for the day after pill, but it's still have pharmacists asking for it. And that's another <laughs> issue. So but yeah, at that point, it was seven clinics. So even in a place like Rome, so I understand that it's in the south or in certain other parts where you have numbers like 90% of objectors, you, like women have to go to, they have to, to go and access abortion how they, they can. So we're trying to bring these numbers every time that, uh, and it has been like, for example, two years ago, the Minister of Health has published this number saying, oh, we don't have a problem. But what the, the activists are doing is actually saying, like, read the numbers well, we actually have a problem. And we try to bring it there on the discussions and to challenge this clause that we have in our, in our law. Thank you for sharing this also. Yeah. I think it really uh, sheds a light on how problematic this can be and how can uh, seriously, seriously put in danger women's lives when even though it's legal, a woman has to recur to, to something that uh, can, can be so prejudicial to their own bodies, right? So I just actually want to go back to Emma for a moment uh, about access because since the new laws have come in in the Republic of Ireland, it hasn't, been, hasn't gone quite as smoothly as what we hoped for. Yeah, so I guess just for a bit of context, the legislation kind of came into effect as of January 2019. So this is following the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Um, yeah, I think one of the cornerstones of the repeal movement was that you would have free, safe, legal and local um, access to abortion healthcare. Now, while currently there are no 
you know, publicly available statistics on the number of um, abortions procured, and there's no list of general practitioners who are providing uh, this service. So it, 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 it's a bit difficult to get a full picture of what's happening at the moment. So with the Brussels Irish for Choice, we've been reaching out to local groups in the Republic of Ireland, uh, which are still active after the repeal campaign. And they're really focusing on the implementation of abortion healthcare within, um, within Ireland. And what we're hearing is that there isn't, you know, uh, full access across, across the board. So there's still people being left out. But again, without any data, without any access to towards understanding where the service is actually being um, provided, it's very difficult to make a full assessment on that. So uh, while we understand that there might be some issues with pulling together a list of general practitioners um, who are providing the service, um, particularly if it's still stigmatized in some areas, um, particularly if people are going to go out protesting, which is a thing that's happening in front of maternity hospitals, there's some kind of anti-choice protesters who are setting up you know when already there are vulnerable women um vulnerable people who are going in and out of these hospitals for for checkups who might be receiving bad news making a point to say that they don't want abortion in ireland with you know really really kind of without thinking about the consequences of the people who have to to view this um, so I, I imagine that's one reason why we don't have that type of information just yet. Uh, but what we are hearing is that access is not necessarily uniform um, and that there is kind of uh, not so much a focus on, on the local side just yet and that needs to be improved. Another issue is that when you are trying to access um, abortion healthcare services, you have to wait uh, for three days for a cooling off period. So day one you visit your gp um, or you go to the hospital um, you you basically state your case you kind of discuss the service that you want and then you're sent away to think about this for three days even if you have made up your mind and then you come back for another appointment um in which and then you'll go back for your appointment this this could have serious implications where service is not at a local level because you have to think about the logistical arrangements that somebody has to make so while you might not have to leave the Republic of Ireland in order to have an abortion, um, you may have to leave your, your local town, you might have to leave your county, uh, you might have to consider how you're going to access or where you're going to access um, the service. Um, and of course, if you have to take into consideration the price of public transport, if you have to take into consideration the fact that you might have to take a day off of work to go, you might have to explain yourself to your family if you might want to keep that private so this this all has implications for for access and of course on um how people interact with the service so you're seeing that it's it it, it it's got its road bumps and we can only hope that um what's happening this year is encouraging enough to kind of keep uh, people signing up to providing the service and of course the encouraging activism that's happening on the ground that will perhaps help to spread this service into more localities. I think when you look at these uh, reflection periods in particular it makes it so difficult for women especially when you only have abortion up to 12 weeks because women's bodies all react differently from the moment of conception to the moment where you can actually figure it out. It's not allowing a lot of flexibility and time for women to actually access healthcare mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and of course you're probably also going to have to factor in that when you discover that you're pregnant you know you have a lot of thinking to do yourself yeah. before you perhaps make it to your gp or to a hospital and so that kind of thought process that you're having that conversation that you're having with yourself or the conversation that you're perhaps having with your family 
can also maybe have implications on, on the, the time that you would access. Yeah. So just adding another cooling off period when you've probably been through a period of intense reflection as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, again, it, I, I don't fully understand. It doesn't fully compute to me because it's a very serious decision that is not taken on a whim. Um, and I wonder if it's just kind of written this way in order to kind of create a certain level of comfort in public discourse around access to abortion services? In my opinion, so uh, it's, uh, the law in Portugal is uh, the same. So uh, it's allowed to have pregnancy interruption, as we call it, until 10 weeks. Uh, but yeah, the woman is forced to have this period for reflection that would last for three days. And in my opinion, yeah, that's what you said, that, you know, maybe makes people more comfortable because they would think, yeah, she really thought thought it through, like she had these three days, right? But I think it's just a reflection of the lack of trust Mm. in women's uh, capacity to actually take a decision. Mm -hmm. I think there's like a general lack of trust that women can actually have this kind of decision in their hands and therefore the need for this law. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if it's a simplistic way of uh, <laughs> looking at it, but that's how I feel if I'm, someone imposes something like that to me. Because as you said, when, when a woman takes this decision already, she already thought it through, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, she had a lot of time to, and there, there was for sure a lot of like internal conflicts and uh, yeah. So I think it's really lack of trust. I totally agree, but I'm just thinking about like this. If we were just like if it was me and you, we have pretty ordinary lives. Could you imagine the struggle it would be if you're a migrant woman mm-hmm. in a relationship that is quite violent or something like this? You know, if you have disabilities, the complexities of human life are so much that it's insane that you have this really limited one size fits all sort of system when life is complicated and we are not all the same. And as Emma was saying, it's like, yeah, it's also the, the problem if you have to travel. So it's not, it's only limiting the access to it, mm-hmm. having have to go to go back. And yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. Because while the service might be free at the point of access. So again, when you kind of have to travel to your point of access, uh, it can become difficult. As, as Emma mentioned, there, there are so many different types of situations out there. So for instance, you might be someone who has to rely on a partner um, for access to, 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 to money or you know, financial means, whatever it is. Um, but you could also be an asylum seeker living in direct provision um, and trying to and direct provision centers are not always conveniently located. You know, they're, you're probably not going to have like amazing infrastructure. Um, and then, of course, trying to get money together to, you know, access public transport to get to your point of access. It's, it can be very difficult for a lot of people out there who are trying to access abortion. Moving on, because I feel like we can talk about this all day. <laughs> I, find, I find this particular aspect of the whole abortion to be very interesting, though. So many states like Northern Ireland and El Salvador have full abortion bans uh, and criminalisation of abortion. There are even cases where women are being prosecuted. In your opinion, why do, we, why do such rigid laws exist? What are the consequences for women? And do you think changing abortion from criminal law 
to more healthcare policy would change social opinions, Emma? Uh, that's that's a big, big question. Big, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't claim to be an expert on Northern Ireland or El Salvador. Um, and actually through the Brussels Irish for Choice group um, and with the help of Emma, <laughs> I've been like educating myself and, and getting to know and really kind of going through an intense research process on Northern Ireland. It's complicated. It's incredibly complicated. To respond to the criminalization question, first of all, if, if we look at Northern Ireland for a second, let's say, for example, you need to access an abortion for whatever reason, and you don't have the means to travel, and you decide to procure an abortion in your jurisdiction, you're going to do that in secret. And so you're creating less safe conditions um, for, for people to have this procedure, which, had you crossed over the border, is perfectly legal. In El Salvador, again, you know, you create this culture of fear that if you are uh, a pregnant person who miscarries, for instance, that the people around you just might have that suspicion that it's been an abortion potentially to protect themselves because they don't want to be seen as complicit. And so you, you see a lot of stories coming out in the news where women have miscarried and they're suddenly kind of in handcuffs and they're suddenly being prosecuted and sentenced to prison for something that's beyond their control. And so on, on that aspect, I would say, you know, criminalization serves to create this fear, but it also serves to instill a lack of empathy. Um, and it doesn't see, you know, people as individuals, but it just sees them as kind of just being unfortunate parts of this system that is unwilling to change and unwilling to look at individual circumstances and to protect women and, and to believe people. Um, and create safe spaces to have a conversation and ensure that they're getting access to healthcare, which is so vital. For me, the big part of this is that the fact that abortion law, even in parts of Europe where it is semi-legal, you know, in, for instance, the UK, it's actually in the criminal code. Yeah. <laughs> Even they have to have ex like exemptions in order to uh, enable access. Yeah. Very psychological in the sense that it's still stigmatized if you're just criminalizing it. Right, I think that's a very fair assessment. Maybe kind of day to day, if you're living in Great Britain, let's say, where there is access then that's probably not something that you would necessarily consider um, so intensely if you're making the choice. But certainly in, in Northern Ireland, that's certainly um, something that people have at the forefront, that this, this is criminal. And by saying something is criminal, you're saying it's inherently wrong. And, and again, it's, it's something that exists. It's something that happens. And the least you could do is decriminalize it so that you're ensuring that people who need it, who need this vital healthcare service, are, are being protected, that they're being safe, that you're not kind of inflicting more trauma on top of an already difficult. For me, it's just insane the fact that Northern Ireland, which is a jurisdiction of the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. that 1,053 women who travelled to England and Wales in 2018 could be considered criminals in Northern Ireland, but yet they're not in England and Wales. Again, how do you square this circle? We're always going back to the same phrase. Uh, I think also there is this, this extreme cases that really shed a light on you know this issue of criminalization and how uh, how heavy the criminal offenses are against women who uh, practice abortion. Um, that a woman who actually uh, was raped can, uh, if she tries to have an abortion because as as a cause of the rape, um, she can get a higher criminal charge than her rapist. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 
this has actually happened in Northern Ireland yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's been a few notorious cases and notorious I mean very very public and they've been quite horrendous to read. One of one such case was when a girl took illegal uh, abortion pills which she procured online and her flatmate did she end up reporting her and to me that was insane like this is a girl who you lived with who knew you very well I would say and there was no doubt in her mind to go and report her and I personally find that very very difficult. So my first question is to Lara. All across Europe and beyond we are seeing the pro-choice movement grow and this Saturday uh, Malta will have its first rally for choice despite the negative uh, backlash and um, the threats to activists. What do you think is driving the increased surge of the movement at this moment? Um, if we see in, uh, in Malta at the moment, they had, for example, in the recent year, they've made a lot of progress on, uh, on other civil rights, like, for example, on LGBT rights. So women are asking as well to have the, their, their rights respected. And as well, I think, is also uh, seeing the, soli- like the, the solidarity with the other women of what is happening in other countries, like, for example, looking at Ireland, this, this finding the strength. To, to go to the streets, even if they're still being targeted with threats. And we, we met recently an activist from, from Malta, and it's, it's, very, it's a very small island, so it's very difficult for women to actually go to take the streets and be public about um, abortion or abortion rights. So, yeah, they have our support from, and we have to show them our support from everywhere in, uh, in Europe. I think also this the sudden rise in the movement as well very much does relate that it's kind of like a triggering effect. I don't know about you, but I feel like we suddenly seen Ireland talking about it then all of a sudden it was exploding mm-hmm. in Latin America and now other parts of Europe like in Poland and Italy were seeing that rise up and now this new uh, campaign group in Malta, uh, Voices for Choice, which I recommend everyone to go follow them and support them. And for me it's very inspiring to see this because abortion was always so taboo and it's now for me it gives me hope that people are not afraid to talk about it and to actually demand body autonomy for themselves that they actually recognize that i'm important as well yeah. you know but for sure i feel like uh, something's happening a certain part of the world that really inspire other parts of the world, right? And I feel more and more we are becoming aware as activists that we can learn from others' experiences. And Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot of uh, maybe uh, Argentinian activists are getting in touch with Irish activists and saying like, what, what have you done? What is the secret that you made something great? Mm. Uh, what is the secret for this campaign? We want this for Argentina. And I feel solidarity is such a core value of the feminist movement. And I think that's, that's probably the reason, right? Yeah. We as sisters are supporting each other on an international level, on a global level. Our sisters from Malta. <laughs> yeah, this is... True, like for example in Italy, I'm saying I represent this group that we have created here that is Non Una Di Meno Europa, but actually the movement started in, uh, in Italy in, uh, in 2016 and the name comes from uh, Ni Una Menos, that, that started in Argentina and as well the methods that we use there, it's inspired by the strike from the Polish women, so it, it's all, it gave hope to, to Italian women as well, seeing women in Argentina, in Poland on the street, 
and then and then Irish women. So it's, yeah, the sisterhood, and it actually moves. It moves you to see a certain image and seeing what other women are doing, and you learn from their examples as well. <laughs> it's almost like a peer-to-peer exchange in a way. <laughs> I find it very fascinating when we're in feminist circles. Like we had a meeting the other night and just sitting around talking at the table, exchanging uh, experiences, best practices and plotting as well, which is always really fun. And those spaces where we can actually really get together are so valuable. Nowadays it's so easy with the internet, you know, uh, people like in different parts of the world can just get together and exchange. So the next question is uh, for Laura. While the pro-choice movement may be growing, the flip side of this is that the anti-choicers uh, are working harder than ever. Italy is no stranger to them. So uh, Laura, what are some of the tactics you're seeing back home from the anti-choicers and what are pro-choice activists doing to counteract? So we had a, quite a surge in the recent years of anti-choicers and in particular we, we saw this year Verona was the hosted uh, the World Congress of Families where a large amount of uh, representatives of conservative groups but as well religious groups have gathered together to, to talk about the, the so-called traditional values and their view of what is family, what are the women rights or other civil rights. So, and the problem was that this time, the, the government at that point gave their, their support. So they received the endorsement of the government. Salvini participated as well. The Minister for Family participated to this. So it was, we were very shocked. So what the, the, move, the feminist movement did, and also... It's not only the feminist movement, but it's been cross-sectoral, but as well, it's, uh, it's a f- the feminist, uh, trans-feminist movement, and we received support from several parts of the world. They launched a counter-demonstration, uh, but as well, days in the same city to counter this Congress of Families, to show them our ideas and to make concrete policy proposal to counter this narrative that was hosted in Italy, but as well it was coming from all over the world because this it's a world congress. And there were around 150,000 people that joined the counter-protest and it was like they had days of debates to how to counter this anti-choice movement and anti-choice groups. So like, yeah, I was talking already about Nonuna di Meno, so that was leading the, um, the demonstration, but as well, there were many other groups that joined the protest. And what is great is to see that it's not only coming from women, but it's all the different groups of society, and as well is a it's an intersectional movement. So we have representative of the disability uh, movement, we have trans feminists as well, and we have as well practitioners that taken part to this ten, like to support the movement. So it has been the the attack to our rights has been high, but the reaction has been as great as well. So it's uh, it gives you hope that there is still we can still counter this discussion, even if they're brought directly on our in our country. 150,000 people, it's a very impressive number. Yeah. There were, I wasn't there unfortunately because I, I live here in, uh, in Brussels, but they organized buses, people donated money, uh, there were trains paid for activists to go there from every part of Italy, so it was great. 
I just want to mention one thing here. Like, we often, like these groups, as you mentioned, they come from very much a religious sort of background. Mm -hmm. They're often backed by churches. We had the World Congress of Families in Ireland. And for me, one of the standard things about repeal was that we were able to counteract the religious dogma with actually clear science and facts. And I think this is where the medical profession and lawyers and other sectors that are play a massive role. Mm-hmm. And that gives me a lot of comfort. So one for Emma, because I think she would have some insight on this. Since the proposed liberalisation of the laws in Northern Ireland, my personal Facebook has been absolutely riddled with anti-choice propaganda. In your opinion, are there ways to counteract this? Yeah, there there are ways to counteract it. I just think it's really funny because, you know, a few minutes ago we were talking about kind of implicitly the virtue of social media and helping to kind of galvanise the feminist movement and to kind of help people like share ideas and experiences but then on the flip side um you also open up platforms for misinformation as you just said yeah of course there are ways to counteract it i mean you know you can kind of start from you know a very basic level by ensuring that people are kind of social media savvy that they understand what sources they're reading first of all but you know it's not beyond the realms of possibility for technology companies to kind of take this in hand as well and uh, if i'm not mistaken in the run-up to the referendum in ireland uh, facebook refused to run ads regarding the referendum if uh, the ads were coming from outside of Ireland um, and that was uh, an attempt to kind of counteract any undue influence on on the potential result so I mean yeah you can create a will you can create a movement to kind of counteract the the spread of misinformation I think it's pretty important because I, back home these are people who I know mm-hmm. on my Facebook I know them I've grew up with them and a lot of them would be around our age and it kind of worries me the fact that they're willingly also sharing this information and which they're entitled to do but when I've often pointed out in the past this is lies it hasn't always gone down very well but it, it kind of worries me in the sense that this could be impacting people's willingness to go and seek an abortion if they need it because it feels like it's perpetuating social stigma uh, which again it could impact someone's health and uh, I just find it very irresponsible. No I, I, I completely agree it's uh, <laughs> it makes a difficult situation worse and I think your point on social stigma is incredibly valid I mean one thing about the the repeal referendum um, is that it did create a, a safe space in a way uh, for some people to choose to tell, to tell their story and, and it brought to the surface a lot of stories that had never been told before because women were operating under a cloak of secrecy you travel to to england under the guise of having a shopping weekend you know rather than actually telling people the the truth or the reality of the situation so yeah you're you're not wrong if you keep the stigma going if you keep misinformation kind of thriving and if access to this misinformation becomes easier and easier then it becomes very hard to counter the narrative that abortion healthcare should be part of a normal healthcare service that it is something that is often necessary and yeah you you push it into the shadows again you create this culture of fear for women who um, want to access this service. I also just want to mention the point and that I know that healthcare is out of the EU's remit. You know, it lies within member states to determine healthcare. But to me, it's absolutely insane just listening to this conversation that there are such wide disparities in terms of reproductive healthcare within Europe. 
that for instance there could be women in Sweden who have very little problems accessing as far as I know <laughs> and whereas you could be in Malta and it's not even there at all. It, for me that much very much creates an inequality and it, it needs to be a discussion as well on a wider EU level. I, I think you're right because you know it is a right um, and I mean you'll be more expert on this um, and be able to talk rings around me on the the CEDAW um, <laughs> recommendation you know which basically does say that you know to deny access to abortion particularly in the case of Northern Ireland is basically kind of tantamount to a contravening right to curtail this access is, is not right you just explain what is the CEDO for our listeners who don't know so much about this topic? Um, okay, so basically CEDO uh, is the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. It was established in uh, the late 70s and essentially it outlines the international rights that women should be able to kind of access. And of course what I was saying there was that there was a recommendation from CEDO that uh, Northern Ireland was discriminating against women, violating their rights by curtailing their access to abortion. We could talk about Northern Ireland, but I feel like this could also apply to Italy in a way yeah. as well. It, it just feels like it's a recurring theme in so many of these countries that are experiencing major problems with abortion access. But as we know, the, it's not the EU competence. I know. You then have in discussions the, the fact that they can't have an, like they can't impact national law on that but you can give recommendations but not impose the mm. changes okay i suggest for the next podcast we get some meps in here mm. <laughs> their perspective is very much needed all right then so just to wrap up with our second last question i think we can all agree that we owe a great amount of gratitude to activists from all backgrounds who have invested so much to get us to the point where we are and on that note in order to build a stronger movement from each of you, one tangible action that you think can strengthen the movement to ensure that abortion is free, safe, legal, and local for all people? So uh, that's a great question, thanks. I'm thinking about the contest of Italy. I think one action that we need at the moment, because we have this great platform that is Nonuna di Meno, we made a, a plan of, of policy proposal, of tangible policy proposal for change. We need to start talking to politicians. We need to find allies in politics because at the mo we don't have to become party political because it's still it's a movement and it's independent, but we need to find legislator that actually would take on some of our requests. If not, if not, it will just stay in the streets. Because we need to, to start talking to them. And we are we kind of like, in the, in the elections, in the past election, we stepped back from politics. We, some of the, the parts of the movement have invited people not to go and vote. So we actually have to start talking to the politicians. And this is my own opinion. It's not... Uh, I think that's actually interesting that you mention the political aspect of it because since repeal, a lot of activists in Ireland did actually go into politics mm -hmm. and seek election yeah. afterwards because I feel like they've they seen the value of that space. Yeah. So, Emma? So, um, I think one action that would be crucial is to create and um, harness safe spaces for deliberation, discussion and dialogue. And I think one thing that this could do is create a platform for telling stories by those um, people, by people sharing their experience. But kind of to build on what you've said earlier on, kind of to, to create um, a space in which 
experts you know from from law backgrounds from from the medical professional kind of um cross-sectoral kind of experiences can come and, and 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 answer questions that people might have i think it would also be important to bring people from the other side of of the the spectrum people who might be anti-choice for instance to be able to actually express what it is that their concerns are in you know uh, preferably a neutral way <laughs> so that you can actually create that space where you can dispel myths, where you can counter misinformation and kind of really just understand where the other side is coming from. I don't know if that's a tall order, but I think at the very least, um, kind of keeping conversation open is, is crucial. Okay, thank you for sharing that. So um, our very last question, and uh, for the ones who listen to us since the beginning, they already know what, what the question will be, is uh, what is your favorite all-time feminist quote? Sure, yeah. So I think my favorite is, it's from um, Roxane Gay. Oh. <laughs> I embrace the label of bad feminist because I'm human. Uh, I feel like that completely relates <laughs> to every fiber of my being, <laughs> and the way I live my life. So, and, and it's encouraging as well from such an icon. <laughs> so. That's yeah, I can I can totally relate. <laughs> And mine is um, from Audre Lord. I am not free while any woman is unfree. And for me, it's fundamental because it's I I am first of all a feminist, but I'm also an LGBTI activist. And if any woman in the world is not free, and I mean every woman, including transgender women, and, or any person is not free, I, no, we're not free. So we still have to keep fighting. Laura speaking truth to power. Yes, completely. Okay, so just to wrap up then, thank you both Emma and Laura for joining us. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear from both of your experiences, your opinions on this very important topic. And it's one that I, that's very personal to me, one close to my heart. So probably so far my favorite discussion that we've had on a podcast. Just so today. <laughs> yeah, completely. Also, a big massive thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'll be posting the next episode for the My Clit Counts series in the next few weeks. And I can already tell you, it's one that you won't want to miss. But in the meantime, keep those fan vibes flowing. <laughs>